Any kids, kindergarten through third grade, can make their way to the back? Levi and Brianna, I'll take you guys downstairs. Take your Bible with me this morning and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are Bibles on the back table right outside the door. I would encourage you to grab one and have it in front of you. Have the words that we're going to be looking at in front of you. Um, This is vital. It's important. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are paper copies in the back table against the back wall. Feel free to grab one of those and take one of those home with you if you need a copy or need a new copy of God's Word. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to just read the first seven verses and consider these together in our time. The preacher of Ecclesiastes writes to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and, the, and a, voice is fool, or a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let your mouth lead you into let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. In our time in Ecclesiastes, we've seen the preacher of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, King Solomon, going back and forth and discussing ideas and things that are vanity. Last week, Blaise preached about the vanity uh, that we find in individualism, but then also in community, that both of those things, while one is foolish and one is wise by earthly standards, both of those things cannot offer us, cannot give us the life that we need that extends beyond beyond here on earth under the sun. And so when we get to chapter 5, we keep that in mind. We keep the idea of community and the wisdom of community in mind. And when we move here, we have a very specific admonition, a solemn warning from the preacher in Ecclesiastes to guard our steps and to guard our speech. Now, both of these things come very naturally to all of us standing up and walking, moving a direction, or simply uh, intending to do something. And then our speech, our mouths, our words, they typically run free. And it probably goes without saying then, as we get into this text this morning, that many of us know someone who doesn't attend church is not active regularly in a community of faith because of something that someone has said to them in that context. The unguarded steps or unguarded speech of another may be the reason why a person 
does not regularly worship together with the people of God. My own grandfather bore deep wounds because of the flippancy of speech of a pastor in his small Minnesota town. Or maybe this is you even this morning. Maybe you're rechecking out church after an extended hiatus because someone said something to you or someone did something to you that was deeply painful, that was incredibly hurtful. Unchecked words can cut us to the bone. Even the word church for some of us conjures difficult images and conversations that we've had in the past in the context of the community of faith. This is inevitably the case for many, many people, including, I'm sure, some of you in here. At the same time, I think many of us, this is the flip side, same, uh, different side of the same coin, many of us are church idealists. We come to church and we think that things should be perfect and that we should come into, rock through those front doors and everything should cater to us in that, in that moment. We show up on Sunday and expect one thing. We have grand plans and visions for what they should look like, but we often get something else. Why? The answer is simple. And the, the, uh, the preacher of Ecclesiastes implies it when he tells us to guard our steps in our speech, it is because the people who are in this room are sinful. Sinful people are involved, both you and me. And when we strive to be God-honoring with our steps and our speech, it doesn't always happen. And so it shouldn't surprise us when we get a group together this size that it doesn't take long for someone to offend someone else. Or... Versus simply not like something that's going on. Honestly, the miracle is it doesn't happen more. The preacher gets this. He sees the people of God gathered together as they are and not as they should be. He's not an idealist. He gives us a heavy dose of realism. This is the way things are, and so he tells us to guard our steps and to guard our speech. Our sinful flesh doesn't get hung up on the coat rack when we walk through the doors into the sanctuary. We come into the space and say, I I want it to look like this. I want to feel like this. I want to experience this. I want to do this. I want others to do these things for me. And that represents idealism. Charles Spurgeon said about church idealism, If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should have never joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, I would, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. How does the preacher respond to things then as they are? He issues this warning in, in, in chapter 5. Essentially, watch yourself. It is the responsibility of every believer to vigilantly guard his or her steps and his or her speech. It is the responsibility of every believer to guard his or her steps and his or her 
speech. What's the best way to do that? The preacher doesn't just tell us to do that and then expect some behavior modification on our part so that we show up and we don't say anything at all because we still are called to be active together, to be speaking words of encouragement to one another, to be living life together. And so the fool would say that I'm going to isolate myself from the community of faith so that then I don't have to risk offending someone else. That's not what the preacher says. The preacher says very clearly here, the way to guard your steps and the way to guard your speech when you go into the assembled people of God is to know who God is. To fear the Lord. This is his conclusion again in this section. Verse 7. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Guarded steps, guarded speech are a result of the fear of the Lord. A reverence for him, an awe, an honoring, a glorifying of the one who made you. The one to whom you owe everything. And so, in our time this morning, we're going to break off these two sections. Really, the guarded steps is in verse 1, and then the rest is an admonition to guard our speech. So we're going to look at that first verse together, verse 1, and we're going to consider our steps, and then we're going to look at 2 through 7, 6, 7-ish, and we're going to consider our speech. So look at verse 1. The, the preacher writes, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. A word that's become incredibly popular in our culture at large, and I think it's a good word, I think it's very helpful. We rail against culture a lot here. But the reality is this word is very good, it's very helpful, is intentionality. Intentionality. Doing things with purpose, doing things deliberately, not just going through the motions in life, doing things with conviction. The preacher wants us to be intentional when we gather for worship. He wants to communicate how we gather together is important. How we gather together is important. To really consider what we are about to do and notice He says, when, guard your steps, when, and he does not say, guard your steps, if. The preacher knows that we don't hang the sinful flesh up on the coat rack, and yet gathering together for worship is still assumed. People hurt you, they say dumb stuff, no doubt they will. But the when doesn't become if because of sin. Not only is the how we gather important, but that we gather is equally, if not more, important. And so we would do well to consider what the gathering together of the people of God for worship is meant to accomplish. For some of us, church is often more about doing our hair and getting dressed and getting out the door and a social engagement or a bit of entertainment, or to give our kids a dose of moralism, 
than it is about coming together to worship Jesus. But when we gather together as the people of God, we proclaim something incredibly profound. This morning, in this room, we are gathered to say one thing, and that is Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. That's why we go to church, to be continually reminded of the reality that Jesus is alive. He is not dead. We worship on a Sunday and not on a Saturday because it's the day that Jesus came back. We set aside a day in our calendar, the Christian calendar, to celebrate Easter and the resurrection. But every Sunday when you walk through those front doors, you are making a proclamation to the world that Jesus is alive. We come to observe an empty tomb. That's what we're doing. We're observing an empty tomb. We're going to go to the Lord's table in a minute. When Paul writes about the Lord's table, he says that we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. We proclaim the death of Jesus until he returns, which then immediately and undoubtedly implies that Jesus is alive. So when we gather together, we gather together to say the tomb is empty. That's why we gather the first day of the week. We gather to enjoy Jesus, to remember his sacrifice, and to proclaim that it is sufficient, and that we are the gracious recipients of it, and that our satisfaction is only found in him. We gather to be formed, not just to experience, but to be formed formed into a people who have become the beneficiaries of God's loving kindness. You and I have been transferred from death to life, from darkness to light. We gather to spur one another on by meeting together, stirring one another up to love and good works and to encourage one another as we eagerly await Jesus' return. There's more to say here, but let's stick to the preacher's point. The preacher's point is this. You must use the intentional understanding of who God is and what he's done for you in Christ Jesus and that the tomb is empty. You must use that truth to guard against flippant steps and flippant speech. In the second half of verse 1, the preacher writes, to draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Solomon, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, his dad was King David, but the king that preceded him was not of his line. The king that preceded him was King Saul. Saul was largely a very foolish man. And after Saul won a military victory, against the Philistines, recorded in 1 Samuel 13, he was instructed by the prophet Samuel to wait seven days in order to offer sacrifices to the Lord. But, as people are prone to do, his armies and the people that were traveling with him after this military victory against the Philistines grew restless, Scripture tells us. They grew restless, and Saul immediately began to think, how can I hold these people's attention? Samuel had said, don't offer the sacrifices until I've returned after seven days. But Saul says, i got to do something. So he offers up the sacrifices. And usually how things like this go, when you act in haste, 
Samuel showed up immediately after he finished offering the sacrifices. And Samuel says, what, what did you do? And Saul admits that he had offered the sacrifices hastily. And Samuel tells Saul that he had done foolishly, and because he had done so, that his line would not continue, that God would appoint another line. And ultimately, in four chapters, 1 Samuel 17, we have the appointment, the anointing of David as king. In chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, Samuel sums this all up for us. And for Saul, as he speaks to him, when Saul acted rashly yet again, just two chapters later, Samuel says, Has the Lord as, not, or as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. No doubt Solomon, when he writes chapter 5, verse 1, has this in mind. This is wisdom. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. He may have even had this story in mind as he wrote this. Saul thought that his sacrifice was God-honoring, but it wasn't because he neglected to obey and he neglected to listen. He missed something very vital. God delights in obedience and listening more than sacrifice. And so the preacher directs us to draw near and listen. To draw near and to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. It's almost as if he's saying it's better to silently get just a little glimpse than to give or serve incorrectly. This idea is alluded to in the psalmist in Psalm 84.10. You know this psalm. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. The NASB says, I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God. Just look in. Just peek around the corner and see what's going on. I'd rather stand at the threshold or just be a simple doorkeeper than to dwell in a place where I should not be. Where have my steps taken me? Guard your steps, therefore. To draw near and to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. And so guarded steps look like those who come to church prepared to listen. And this can change everything. If as a church together we decide to first guard our steps by drawing near and listening, we demonstrate deeper understanding about who we are and who God is. Our mouths betray us. Our mouths tell everyone what we truly believe. Jesus says, out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's going on in your heart can be clearly perceived by what you say. So again, if we are a church, together we decide to first guard our steps by drawing near and listening. We demonstrate a deeper understanding about who we are and who God is. We are creatures. He is creator. We are recipients. He is the giver. Our sinfulness and rash behavior can wound. But God 
is the one who binds up wounds. When we draw near and listen as a church, we acknowledge that we are a group of sinners who need to hear from the one who sent his only son to pay for our sin and rebellion. And when you're listening, it implies that your speech is guarded. So that's the second thing. Solomon tells us to guard. Look at the rest of the text, 2 through 7. He tells us to guard our speech. It's an interesting piece of information this week. I thought it was helpful. In conversations, put yourself in this position, you're having a conversation with a friend or a peer or a coworker. In conversations, people are only willing to give themselves 30% of the time to respond to the person they're conversing with as they're willing to give that person. So let me say this again. If you're talking to a friend and they pause for 10 seconds and you feel like that's an acceptable amount of time before they transfer over into awkward silence, you're only willing to give yourself three seconds to do the same. So oftentimes when we're having a conversation with someone, we feel like we got to jump in right at the end of the thing that they said to continue the conversation going. But for us, oftentimes that's, that's false. We would only be willing to give ourselves three seconds if we're willing to give the person we're conversing with ten. As a result, people speak too quickly and say dumb stuff. They feel like the response should come more quickly. And we don't bite our tongues, it comes back to bite us. We find ourselves more likely to wound with our words by speaking too quickly. Bible has something to say about this in the New Testament. James 1.19 reads, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. In 2 through 7, the preacher gives three action items here. Look at verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth. Look at verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. And verse 6, let not your mouth lead you into sin. Each of these points us to a particular truth. The preacher says that we shouldn't be rash with our mouth in verse 2. And he clarifies that this is internal speech also. So just because it doesn't come out of your mouth doesn't mean that it's not going on in your head or in your heart. Look at what he says. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Why? For God is in heaven and you are on earth. This is a fundamental truth about who God is that helps us to guard our speech. If we approach every conversation that we have with another, if we approach our Sunday morning worship, our singing, our speaking, if we approach all of these things with a depth of understanding that God is in heaven and that we are on earth, it will dramatically change the way that we engage with others and with God. We put ourselves in that position far too often. We put ourselves in the position that would say, Man, I can't believe that person said that thing. I have now put myself in God's rightful place. I want to go back up to verse 1 again. and We're not getting very far here. We're only in verse 2. 
I promise we'll, we'll speed up. Go back to verse 1 and look at the, f- the, the, the last phrase in that first sentence. The house of God. What does that mean? And why is that important? Why is that important? Especially when we get into verse 2 and through the end of this section. The house of God. The preacher wants us to ask the question or to acknowledge, where does God dwell? Where does God dwell? We ask ourselves this question. He dwells in heaven, but where does he dwell? How do we recognize or know where God is? For Solomon, it was the temple. He built the temple he was instructed to build. He builds the temple. God dwells there. Before Solomon, there was the tabernacle. It was a tent that moved around with the nation of Israel. And before that, we see God dwelling with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So this is important stuff. God dwelled in the garden, then in the tabernacle, and then in the temple. This is sort of the progression of God dwelling, his, his presence amongst his people. Where was it? Garden, tabernacle, temple. But then something happens. God came down in a way that he hadn't before. He took on flesh and again walked on this earth. And this is Jesus. 33 years, the God-man, Jesus Christ, walked on this earth. And so now we ask ourselves, Jesus ascended into heaven. We ask ourselves, where does God's presence dwell now? Paul, in Acts 17.24 gives us the answer. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made with human hands. Why is that the case, Paul? Because we, the church, the people of God, have received the Holy Spirit. We, the church, our God's dwelling place. This idea and this concept should dramatically transform the way that we think when we walk through the front doors on a Sunday morning. And it should dramatically transform the way that we think about getting out of bed any morning. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. Not a construction, not a building, but God's people gathered for God's purposes. That's God's dwelling place. So when you go to church, you are going to God's dwelling place. Not not the building, but because of the people gathered in it. So, this is the implication. Guarded steps, guarded speech. How, why does that matter? Why does it matter that the preacher in Ecclesiastes writes this? You wouldn't walk in here and take a sledgehammer and start busting up pews or music equipment or stained glass windows. However, when you walk through that front door on a Sunday morning or when you engage a fellow believer in community group or in a discipleship relationship, you take a sledgehammer and start bashing things, the church, when you slander, backbite, gossip, you take a sledgehammer to God's dwelling place. The church is God's people gathered together for God's purposes. And when we use our lips as tools for destruction, and when we approach the people of God, With no intentionality, we put ourselves 
in a precarious position. We tear down the thing that God is building. Your steps are unguarded, and you make your tongue a tool for destruction. James again tells us, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The building is insured against that. The construction. We have insurance. The people of God, you couldn't walk into an insurance agency and ask for insurance for slander. No human being can tame the tongue, James goes on to say in verse 8. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Listen, don't speak rashly. Don't utter a word before God hastily in your heart. When you fail to heed the preacher's warning, you set things on fire and you poison the wells. So, why should we not be rash with our words? Because God is God and we aren't, and our rash words can set a forest ablaze because they ignore who God is. Then look at verse 4 with me, down to verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Now we don't use the word vow much. But we do talk about the things that we will do. Future tense. Things that we are going to do. Things that we will do. This is the way, this is an easy way for us to boast of our image amongst our friends. Or so we think. If you think about the idea of vows, think about vows that you may have taken as a husband or as a wife. These vows are for a lifetime. They aren't completed until death does you part. You probably said something along the lines of for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. But are we delaying in paying those vows? This is an important question. I think if you're married in here, to actually consider the vows that you took on your wedding day, 10, 15, 20, 45 years, 75 years down the road, can actually help us. Are we delaying in paying these vows? Men, consider with me self-sacrifice. You said for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse. But oftentimes, men, we wake up in the morning, we leave the house to make the for richer part a reality in a material financial sense while neglecting that our wife and our children, perhaps, remain spiritually and emotionally impoverished. And so some of us men in this room need to acknowledge that we took a vow and self-sacrificially moved towards a lifestyle that embraces for poorer in a financial sense because your wife and your marriage has only represented sickness and poverty because it's a whole, and it's a whole bunch of worse in spiritual matters. Are we delaying in paying these vows? Now, the context for the preacher here, again, is the gathered assembly of the people of God, the house of God, church. If you make a commitment to the local church, don't, don't, do not delay in paying it. The preacher equates this with making a commitment before God. 
Making a commitment to the people of God is tantamount or equal to making a commitment to God. This should stir something in us. We back out on stuff all the time. Does that mean that you should never make a vow or say that you'll do something? No. What it does mean is that when you do, you shouldn't delay in doing it. For the things that you said you're going to do, you shouldn't wait to perform the task until it's convenient. This drives the preacher then to make his last point in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. A mouth that speaks rashly and vows quickly leads into sin. If you tear believers down or speak quickly to make yourself look good or pray lavish prayers to get the attention of others or stir up dissension, it is sin. No way around it. If you make a vow, a commitment, or express intent and fail to act on it, which is the right thing, it is sin. James 4.17, James has a ton to say about this. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Consider Proverbs 16, 18, and 19 as well. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I am only joking. One way that we deceive our neighbor is by telling them that we intend to do a thing and not following through. I was only joking, you say. So, Guarded speech shows love for God because we know who God is and love for neighbor. So conclusion then, two thoughts. I want to give you two thoughts in conclusion. Before that though, consider with me a, a story that you're incredibly familiar with. In Luke chapter 10, this is the story of Mary and Martha. Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. I think that this story illustrates the preacher's main point. Guarded steps and guarded speech demonstrate who we believe God is. It is the responsibility of every believer to vigilantly guard his or her steps and his or her speech. The preacher says that we are to do this when we go into the house of God. But the interesting thing about this story in Luke chapter 10 is that God came into her house, into Martha's house. And there were two responses. Martha busied herself and complained about Mary. And Mary, on the other hand, slowed down and listened. So I'm going to give you these two thoughts now in conclusion. Two thoughts. First, considering that in Luke chapter 10 and con con considering what 
the preacher writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, first, the difference between God-honoring speech and sinful speech begins with less talking. Begins with less talking. We say lots of stuff. When you come to church, resolve to listen to God and to others. You want to learn to love God and love your neighbor. And you should want that. You should desire to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor. Jesus calls these the greatest commandment. Be quiet and listen. How does God speak to us, you ask? How do we listen to God? The answer is right before us this morning. His word. On Sundays, we read scripture. We sing songs based on scripture. We preach the Bible. We do not neglect to go to the word of God. When we talk about listening, we're not talking about coming to church and just being quiet and sitting in silence. Although sometimes that can be appropriate. But if you want to hear from God, friends, listen to me very clearly. If you want to hear from God in your life, you want to hear his voice, this is it. This is the way. Wake up. Read it by yourself. Read it with your spouse. Read it with your kids. Read it with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Read it with your parents. Many Christians want the audible voice of God or signs. They sit in silence and wait for something to be dropped on them. This is foolishness. God gave us a book. The very words of God. We go to it and we listen to who God is and see clearly who he is. And as a result, we can gather together with guarded steps and guarded speech. When we open the Bible together, as God's people, and read from it. We hear the very words of God. God is speaking to us this morning. Slow down and listen. Don't chase after audible voices and religious experiences when God's word sits on your shelf or in the backseat of your car. Second concluding thought then. So first thing, the difference between God-honoring speech and sinful speech begins with less talking. The second concluding thought is the difference between guarded steps and unguarded steps begins with less doing. We're busy. We're busy people. We busy ourselves with tons of things. And we think, honestly, we, we think that the sum of the Christian life is doing. We think that we should come to church and we should do and that will give us worth. That will give us the ability to be seen by others as something that's important. But the sum of the Christian life is is being. We must be content to simply be. Not because we are enough. That's a worthless, meaningless, futile, vain mantra that the world gives us. You're not enough. Jesus is enough. You're not enough. But in Christ... You are something. A son or daughter of God. A new creation. Forgiven, redeemed, reconciled, justified. 
We sometimes do because we want to prove something. But when we come to church, again, remember, we come to church to proclaim that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is risen, that he's alive, that he's reigning at the Father's right hand. And when we come to church and try to prove something, we do a disservice to that witness. When we come to church, the point is that there is nothing left to prove. And so we can sit at the feet of Jesus like Mary and choose the good portion, which will not be taken away from us. And when we choose the good portion, we are compelled to love one another. We are compelled to serve one another self-sacrificially, and we're compelled to take the gospel out from this place to people who are in darkness. The preacher concludes this section again with verse 7. And this is why knowing God is so important. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. It is God who we fear, who we honor, who we revere, and who we glorify. When we guard our steps and when we guard our speech, we say something about him and we elevate him. So we're going to get a unique opportunity to do that then this morning as we go to the Lord's table. As we move here this morning, as we take the bread and as we drink the juice this morning, we have a unique opportunity to do exactly what the preacher is telling us to do and guarding our steps and guarding our speech. Friends, the Bible gives a stern warning to those who, who have the audacity to approach the table that we would not have a grievance against another that we would take and that we would resolve things with people in our midst. If that's you this morning, if there's someone in this room that you need to have a conversation with because they've offended you or because you know that you've offended them, do that before you come to the table. You're not going to make a scene. Just do it. We're going to come to the table. We're going to participate together. As God's people, we're going to show unity and we are going to be formed into a people who are unified because of what Jesus has done. And that's what this is pointing us to this morning. Broken body on our behalf, a perfect life, perfect obedience that we could not exercise in and of ourselves and shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins, for the washing clean. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, writes to us, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he, took the, or when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, for which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until we, he comes. So this morning we're proclaiming Jesus' death that was sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins and our justification. And then we are also saying Jesus is alive and he's coming back. That's what we're doing when we come to this table. Friends, this morning this is an opportunity for us as those who have trusted Jesus to participate in. This morning, if you do not know what it means to be a Christian, 
If you do not know what it means to be wholly dependent on God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your right relationship with God, don't approach the table. No one's looking at you. No one's judging you. It's okay. This is for believers in Jesus Christ. So if you're a member in good standing at a church from outside of our context or our community, feel free, come forward, grab the elements and take them. But do not approach this table flippantly. Guard your steps as you come up here this morning. Examine yourself. Examine yourself and see how you may build up the body by participating together in the Lord's Supper. If you have kids in here, I would encourage you to exercise parents, exercise discretion for your children. If they have made a a profession of faith, by all means, allow them to participate with you. But if they have not yet, use this as an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them through the elements on display here. Let me pray for us, and the worship team is going to come forward. And, And then you feel free to come down, grab the elements, take them. You can take them back to your seat. And when your heart is prepared, Go ahead and eat and drink.